0: It's Sunday, it's the main course on Heritage Radio Network, this is your host Katie Kiefer with my partner in crime, the excellent, the wonderful, and the ever on the road dude, Patrick Martins Morning Patrick Hey Katie How you doing honey? Good, you? I'm good. I'm good. Very allergic today, Patrick. You and I share that this morning, I notice. We have a great show today for our guests. Uh, Our first guest up today, I mean, for our listeners, our first guest today will be Angela Miller of the Angela Miller Literary Agency, uh, agent to the stars, uh, and also the proprietress of the Consider Bardwell Farm. We're going to hear all about her new book, Hay Fever. Um, Guest number two will be Ron Silver, the chef at Bubby's Restaurant and author in his own right of bubby's homemade pies and lastly in studio we have manny howard uh who is the author of my empire of dirt how one man turned his big city backyard into a farm which is a falling down funny book i am enjoying it enormously and we'll have a great time with manny so um patrick i know you're just back from virginia why don't you tell us for just a second what you were doing down there because you're always on the road man
1: well, we visited with um, three universities, um, Virginia Tech, Radford, and um, James Madison University, trying to see if we could uh, convince them to buy sustainably raised foods. And we got verbal commitments of yes from all three universities, Congratulations. which is great. That um, means a lot for the farmers down there.
0: Absolutely. And
1: then um, I was down in North Carolina visiting a slaughterhouse where we processed 10 pigs that were raised in Virginia to you know, test them out. So we're going back and forth. That house to see, you know, uh, if you know, above and beyond our commitments in the Midwest, we would find any um, possibility to expand the movement, you know, more regional to New York.
0: That sounds great, very worthy, very worthy. And you got back what late last night,
1: mm-hmm. and it's uh, a long ride, man. Alec Bradford, some of his cows escaped and <gasps> into a hay field and were at risk of running over the highway, so we had to wake up early and. Try to get them back. And I got to meet a, a senator who owned the piece of property that they ran onto, senator of Virginia, state senator. So, um, yeah, it was very, very interesting. I mean, Virginia is a beautiful, beautiful state, like former breadbasket of the U.S.
0: Absolutely. And Alec Bradford is the same Alec Bradford that was on this show a few months ago from Leaping Waters Farm, right? And yep. he raises a heritage breed called White Park Cattle. Yeah. <clears throat> which we decided was one of the best-tasting uh, beef experiences we've ever had. We love White Park. And we loved Alec Bradford. He's great. We're going to put him on our clip reel.
1: Oh, really? I think so, Of yeah. our best of? Yeah,
0: best of. Yeah, cool. absolutely. Working on it. So, um, <clears throat> we're uh, coming up on the uh, 1203 mark. And um, <laughs> Patrick, you are not in your usual loquacious and bubbly, voluble self today because of getting in so late yesterday. A few problems around the office. So um, I'm trying to think what I can offer here. There are several uh, guests that I want to bring onto the show over the coming weeks and months. And one of them is uh, a guy named Chip Alamon, who runs a foundation called the Glenwood Foundation in upstate New York, right at the uh, mouth of the Hudson Hills. Um, and uh he is uh he has put together a mobile slaughtering unit and i know you have very pronounced opinions about that Patrick. mobile so slaughter
1: units are I not a viable solution to anything they are useful if someone wants to slaughter on their own facility you know and, and, eat and then eat their own and then eat their own product and for that it's very very valuable yeah but, but in terms that, of
0: bringing it bringing regional uh regionally processed meats
1: Unless it's located right next to a processor where some volume and the trucking unit can come, you know, these individual single acts of, you know, miracles on a farm are, you know, do not speak to the bell curve of where most farmers are of wanting to produce a lot more, but not have to worry about having, you know, 10 head of cattle dead on their farm. And what do they do it from there?
0: Yeah, because once the animal is. Harvested, so to speak, then you need the processing facility. And a mobile slaughterhouse simply does not fill that.
1: What the sustainable food world needs are slaughterhouses and butchers in buildings that can do 50, 60 animals a day, Mm -hmm. a truck, Mm -hmm. and a sales team. That's it. You can have all the conferences you want. The, those three things, it's, it's deceptive, it's boring, but you know, because there's no reason for any more conferences unless someone's going to talk about how to get the animals, how to butcher them, how to sell them, and how to get them there. Right. That's it. So to hear a mobile slaughterhouse open, I don't know what massive trend that's going to start. But you know, there's nothing wrong with them in and of themselves. But you know, Purdue and all these companies are producing billions of abused animals a month, you know, and I don't know that a mobile slaughterhouse is anything to get that excited by considering the, (laughs) you know, global trend of degradation that's going on.
0: Well, I'm not sure it's something to get excited by as much as something to examine in terms of... Um, you know you've just pointed out the problems with this idea and yet for some people it seems like well that's a great way to start if you're but I know that there are two slaughterhouses that are going to be or two processing facilities that are going to be opening up in upstate New York over the next couple of years at least um, so some of that some of that burden is going to be taken off of the farmer and and put where it belongs which is into some sort of a processing plant that that will. Hopefully, uh, generate um, income and better food for the region. <clears throat> but having a mobile slaughtering unit is sort of like—I mean, I thought of it in terms of of what we discussed uh, a few weeks ago with the cheese people from Sullivan County when we were talking about cheese and we were talking about the cheese mobile,
1: which has been defunct on a farm for three years, not yeah. used. Not a single ounce of cheese <clears throat> has been produced, meaning that they didn't have the sales team. Uh They didn't have the marketing team, again, you know.
0: And they obviously didn't have a cheese maker.
1: Yeah. And, you know, here Ann and I, Ann Saxelby and me, Patrick Martins, are are willing to help launch, you know, to buy all the milk from every single dairy farmer in Sullivan County. We even have a a commitment from your friend, Michael Hurwitz, The Green Market is completely behind this. Yeah. Still, everyone there, I've yet to see a creamery opportunity come our way. Do you know what I'm saying so it seems like again the the second thing, it's about that point of action. Right. People fear they fear entrepreneurs, they fear what if something goes wrong, they fear getting, you know, their feet wet and that's yeah. why farmers suffer
0: yeah well, it's an interesting. I mean, nobody wants to make the financial commitment until all the places all the pieces are in place, and yet without making that financial commitment,
1: they um, make financial commitments all the time. They came up Sullivan County came up with seventy five thousand dollars to find someone not to pay someone to find the finding process oh to gosh. find someone to run the solder house. I'll give them a list of thirty names for free, yeah that's not a place where they should be spending money so I do think they invest I think they just don't always invest in the right places
0: I see well we'll be uh, we're gonna take a short musical break now and we'll be back with our guest Angela Miller our show is sponsored today by fairway uh, like no other market and uh, we'll be back in two minutes with um, with Angela Miller you know that
2: I'm never gonna tell you again Shame. I will only tell you one more time than you know that
0: I'm never We are back this is the main course on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host Katie Kiefer with my partner in crime Patrick Martins. Our <clears throat> engineer is Nat Weiner, our producer Jack Inslee and we are housed in the back of Roberta's restaurant located at 261 Moore Street in Bushwick. Our sponsor today is Fairway Market and our guest is Angela Miller, a literary agent who turned farmer. And I was just absolutely fascinated by your story, Angela. I know you're, you're there, right? Are you there, Angela? Yes, I am. It's a real pleasure to meet you. You and I have many friends in common, although you don't know that. But my best friend is Erica Domain, for example, oh. who is one of your clients.
3: <laughs> yes, wonderful, Erica.
0: It, wonderful, Erica. Erica's been a guest on the show, too. And also, I'm very good friends with Joy Harris, who I know you know as well. Yes, so.
3: yes, absolutely.
0: Um, so um, you were the Miller, you are the Miller Agency. And, I am the Miller Agency. And you represent all kinds of incredible talent, um, and most notably cookbook uh, talent, if I'm not mistaken. Lots Didn't you make a bit of a specialty in the in the food world there?
3: Yes, Mark Bittman, Max McCallum, Liz Thorpe, Jean-Georges Van Richten, and many, many other wonderful authors.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so you had this incredible, high-powered literary career going, and somehow, as if that were not quite enough to do, You and your husband, um, Rust, decided that you needed to have a farm.
3: We did. We hadn't had children, and we needed a project, and we had a dream.
0: And pets didn't quite fill the bill, huh? No.
3: No. <laughs> we needed a big project. You needed a
0: flock of goats? <laughs> <laughs> I, I loved your story. I read your book. It's called, uh, let me, actually, Angela, if you don't mind, I'm going to read this little, um, the little book jacket blurb so that people really get the whole thing here. Okay. Um, it's called uh, Angela's New Book, which came out, what, in March, I think, right? April 19th. Oh, April 19th. Okay. Yeah. Uh, is Angela Miller is the author of Hay Fever, How Chasing a Dream on a Vermont Farm Changed My Life, And it's the compelling and funny story of a high-powered professional's life-changing journey from Manhattan big cheese to Vermont goat cheese maker, although you make both cow's milk and goat's milk cheese. Yes, we do. In the tradition of food memoirs like Under the Tuscan Sun and A Year in Provence, your book is way better, uh, Hay Fever tells the story of New York City literary agent Angela Miller and how looking for tranquility on a Vermont farm turned into an eye-opening, life-changing experience. Seeking solace in the midst of a midlife strife brought on by family stress and a high-stakes career, Miller and her husband bought a farm in rural Vermont. But what started as a part-time project turned into a full-blown obsession and culinary passion that not only changed their lives forever, but also resulted in some of America's best cheeses, prestigious awards, and media fame. Today, cheeses from Consider Bardwell Farm are featured at some of the country's best restaurants, including Jean-Georges, Danielle, The French Laundry, and the Union Square Cafe, where Patrick was kind enough to treat uh, Jack and I to lunch on Friday and where we (laughs) sampled some of your cheese. Nice. It was awesome. We had the cow's milk cheese, um, Dorset, I think it's called. Yes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely brilliant. Brilliant! Thank you. Now you have a cheesemaker working for you named Peter Dixon, right? Yes, we. He's do. still with you. Yeah, so he's he's really the he's the man with the cheese vision here. But clearly, you have created the uh, ideal um, conditions for him to do his yes, magic. Yeah, he's in. the milk into cheese magician. Yeah, totally. Now, Angela, let's backtrack a little bit and and talk about um, sort of what. You know, like I can understand buying a farm, you know, getting a few goats or whatever and, you know, kind of dabbling. But what your ambition... Uh, and drive to like sort of went from zero to one hundred and fifty miles per hour on this. I mean, I was I'm reading your book, and I'm thinking, oh you know, like, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, how did this morph from like just milking a few goats to suddenly, you know, like, I've got to have a cheese room and I gotta make it all happen? And I mean, it's like, I don't know how you do what you do. your 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 week is sort of terrifying. <laughs> well,
3: we uh, we started out with an idea of making nice food for ourselves. We come from New York City milieu, so there's a lot of drive and ambition in the mix, and suddenly couldn't do things halfway and wanted to make pure food for our community and for for cities. Mm -hmm. So we teamed up with a brilliant couple of people, the Peter Dixon and Chris Gray, and we have a a wonderful four-person synergy. Uh That can make this dream
0: come true And we want to pass it on That's fantastic How are you going to be passing it on? What's your plan there? What's your succession plan? Well, in terms of passing
3: it on (laughs) Part of it is my book I want people to understand that Even though farming is hard work It's incredibly fulfilling You can be outdoors You can get to be with animals Like goats and cows And meet with people at farmer's markets Who really appreciate what you're doing and that, that fuels the fire.
0: And would you say that this was actually more rewarding to you than your work as a literary agent, which has you know, underwritten the costs of this? Thank think, God you've got best-selling authors, Yeah, girl. thank
3: God. <laughs> uh, I think it's similar in that I've spent over 20 years trying to help writers nurture their careers. Mm-hmm. And it means spending a lot of time figuring out goals... Managing publishers and contracts it's so wide ranging being a literary agent, yeah, that you know it it does entail similar skills in managing
0: a farm. I would guess so, yeah, no, I don't think that's an analogy that would leap to anybody's mind, but I can see how that would be the case
3: and I think farming has made me a lot sharper at being an agent because in farming, you have to make life and death decisions. Quickly, yes, uh, in publishing, we tend to be very polite and you know we'll talk around each other. I think I've learned to be a lot more direct. Find the point where confrontation is positive uh-huh, and get on to the next thing,
0: yeah, so you've been able to dr- to negotiate better contracts for your writers as a so. result of your <laughs>
3: There's That's less pussy great. footing, you know. You got to make a decision and get on with the work. Yeah, the goats are waiting. Let's <laughs> go here. That's right.
0: <laughs> I love that. So, what's been the what's been the hardest part about um, starting up the the whole sort of cheese whiz experience? What was the what was the biggest challenge about that? Because I too long to make cheese.
3: Well, it was learning the how to create an infrastructure. There's a lot of machinery and. Mm-hmm. Propane and boilers and water and temperature, and the we enlisted the help of the local inspectors, which was a very positive thing. They worked with us to help set set things up correctly uh but i I had never heard of a vacuum pump or a compressor or a generator, and now I've had to step in and fix these these machines, and that's really hard for me,
0: yeah. I would imagine so. But you luckily have, are blessed with a husband who's a, a real Mr. Fix-It. So,
3: exactly. Uh, the only thing is he's not there sometimes when everything breaks down.
0: Well, you know, you can't be everywhere all the time. <laughs> I, <you know? laughs> he really needs to be. <laughs> no,
1: Peter also helps other cheesemakers, doesn't he? I visited a few places in Sullivan County that says that Peter came in and uh, helped advise them on how to set up the creamery part.
3: Yes, Peter's been a teacher and a consultant for a long, long time. He's had his own creameries. But he's a fabulous teacher. So he he goes all over the world. He's he was teaching in Shanghai last year. Um, he's just he goes where they need him, and he did ha- consult with us in the very beginning to help set us up.
0: Uh huh. Um, Angela, let's talk for a second about that. How did you guys decide what kinds of cheeses you wanted to make? Like, as you started out with the goat's milk cheese. And so you probably had like a nice fresh goat's milk to start, like uh, something along the lines of um, I don't know what you call those, like a pyramid or well, you know we, like one of those little bell shaped. Yeah, mm-hmm.
3: yeah. We almost every farm that makes that uh, milks goats will make a fresh goat cheese. That would that would be your first access to cash. Yeah, it's a cheese that doesn't need to age to sell it, so it can go straight out to farmers markets and turn cash around for us. That was the very first thing we did. Uh-huh. and then we started to experiment with aged goat cheese. And Peter has created a product line, if you will, of uh, four incredible goat cheeses, one and uh, four cow cheeses, cow's milk cheeses. We have a partner farm called Jersey Girls. and uh-huh. we use all of their milk from 18 Jersey cows. And we don't milk goats during the winter, so the cow's milk, we make cheese out of cow's milk all winter long.
0: I see. And then the goat's milk comes back into season in the comes spring. It comes back into season can. in May. Uh-huh. Um, what... I, the thing, the reason I put this show together, because after you, unfortunately, I was sorry you couldn't come into the studio, because after you, we have Manny Howard coming on. Uh-huh. You probably know Manny also. And um, and he has written, you know, a, a really hilarious book called My Empire of Dirt. And he <laughs> turned his backyard into a, into a farm. And I, you know, my thought in putting this show together was, you know, here are these two sort of sublimely sophisticated, urbane, urban dwellers um, who got bitten by the, the farming bug. Yeah. But actually, your stories are really very different. Um, but at the same time, there is a certain similarity in, in sort of um, opting to get your hands really dirty and to work really, really hard, um, which farming, you know, however much one might want to think of how cute it all is, it's, there's really nothing cute about farming farming. Mm, no. It's it's really backbreaking work. So um, I thought it was interesting that that both of you were willing to take on that challenge each in your in your, you know, very different ways there. And I, I wondered, you know, like, when you bought your farm with your husband, I know you were sort of looking to opt out of kind of the sleek, groovy thing. At, I think it was Shelter Island. Or yeah. something. Um, but did you really envision that it would go this far? far?
3: I had no idea that it would go this far. I had to pinch myself almost every day for the last six years, and that's what I mean by the dream. Every single day, something wonderful would happen in our cheese development. You know, there were many difficult things that happened um, in terms of, you know, where's the money going to come from? Why is why don't we have water in the well today? But um, I always loved backbreaking work, you know. Until until this cheese thing came along, I would run marathons every year. Uh-huh. I love physical labor and and figuring out how to
0: push myself. Well, where are you from originally, Angela? Are you an urban dweller, or did you grow up in the? I country? grew
3: up in rural Pennsylvania. My father's family were farmers, and when I was a teenager, my parents bought a small. Former dairy farm in Pennsylvania in uh, Chester County, Pennsylvania, and we grew our own vegetables and it was a it, it seemed idyllic at the time mm-hmm. i didn 't have to have all the worries, of course, I was a kid, yeah, um but I loved it, and I always wanted to get
0: back to that amazing i you know because I grew up in rural Rhode Island, and my parents always grew all vegetables we didn't have livestock but I hated it
3: yeah
0: no I didn't feel that way at all <laughs> um <laughs> I was just uh before the before we introduced you as a guest Angela um Patrick and I were talking about a trip that he made recently with Ann Saxelby up to Sullivan County and we were discussing the fact that at a certain point the government uh bought a cheese a sort of portable creamery right Patrick?
1: Yeah, it was a cheesemobile. Like a cheese-mobile. It was actually wow. started by a guy named Rick Bishop, who mm-hmm. is a great uh, force in nature down there. And um but then he left his position at Sullivan County as an extension agent or whatever. And then the basically I think it was staying on someone's farm not being used.
0: Oh, dear. Yeah, and it just I'm just wondering, like, I, I was sort of intrigued by the fact that you were you were able to somehow understand what you needed to have and get it right the first time without even having the interim process of having a cheese mobile uh, come to your aid. And I was wondering how you had figured out all of that infrastructure that you really needed to do. Was that... I that was mean,
3: the fabulous inspectors in Vermont, the milk inspector really? and the cheese inspector, Who came down and visited us? And they
0: just gave you a list of okay, you have to do this. And showed us
3: what all the regulations were. Luckily, my my husband understands how to lay things out. He laid out a plan for the cheese room and the aging, and then they approved it and told him where things needed to be moved so you could wash behind them. But before we set anything in stone, they told us. And Peter Dixon came in several times as a consultant, Mm -hmm. so we had expert. And the inspectors are free.
0: Yeah. Right. So so they provide was, expert help without you without, having to actually. Yeah, they wonder. know in
3: Vermont that that the mission is to have more cheese makers, uh-huh. not to stop having more cheesemakers. I see. But there would be many people who would benefit from a mobile unit.
0: Hmm. So that would be something that actually should be, you know, encouraged and.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. It's young people. I mean, my husband and I had had full blown careers and. We're earning good money, but young people who want to set out in farming don't have that kind of financial support, and they would really benefit from a little help from a mobile unit.
1: What advice do you give uh, young cheesemakers to not produce a cheese that tastes bad? Because, you know, it seems like there's a lot of (laughs) cheese out there that, you know, it comes from a small farmer and you want to like it, but it just doesn't compete well with other like. Yeah, how come
0: you're, like, for that instance, that Dorset cheese, which was just, I thought, absolutely brilliant, easily the best thing we tasted on that cheese plate, what, you know, how do you achieve that kind of depth and richness of flavor? And, you know, I know it's all about the sort of the bacteria and what you're washing it with and stuff, but how how would somebody else, um, you know, go about creating that same kind of magic?
3: Well, I think we're really lucky that we have this talented, experienced cheesemaker maker who is yeah. taught... other young people how to make our cheese and work with him in the cheese room so we can make lots of cheese but young people starting out number one, Patrick I know you know because of Ann, you have to have the palate Uh, if you're just going to make cheese to make some cheese then you maybe should make cream cheese or simple, simple cheese but to really achieve artistry you need to be Consulting constantly, and you get free help. Like the Vermont Cheese Council members will taste for you and comment, and and you, that Cheese Council, and I'm sure Wisconsin and California have similar um, associations. The members are really helpful uh-huh. about flavor identification and what and what we do. Say we make a batch of Dorset, and it takes it's best at 90 days old. We take one wheel of it and we bore into it every few weeks and taste what's going on and make, a, and make sure the flavor profile is what we're trying to achieve.
0: How do you, how do you maintain consistency across batches? I've always wondered how cheesemakers do that.
3: Again, it's um, understanding the, uh, the seasonal components of the milk. So if you have more water in the milk when they go out to pasture, then you have to monitor the fat. Sometimes we have to add, um, you know, more fat to the cheese or use something uh, more or less salt we, but we constantly do this flavor profiling so that we can achieve the consistency. And it is the number one most difficult thing to do, I, I think, think so. in American cheese making. In Gruyere, they've, in, in Switzerland and France, they've had thousands of years to perfect uh, and have a consistent flavor profile. And when customers want to go and buy a cheese, they want to buy the flavor that they bought last time.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I don't ever want my uh, Dorset cheese to taste any different than it did... On that cheese plate on Friday. No,
3: exactly. So we have to get (laughs) it out. We have to get it out to the restaurants and wholesalers when it's achieving its perfect flavor. Mm -hmm.
1: And where can your cheeses be bought?
3: Our cheeses can be bought all over the Northeast. And they are at, um, they're out, we have a wholesaler out in Chicago's Archer's, who handle the cheese and get it to the Midwest. But it's main. It's primarily in the northeast. I'd say down to Washington. Uh-huh. Uh huh. we're a little nervous about shipping it across country because it, cheese like Dorset cannot sit around in boxes. Huh. F- um. So we're taking baby steps. Right. But there's plenty of. We can't. Uh, we can't meet the demand right now. We produce forty thousand pounds in 2009 and we're going up to 50,000 pounds for 2010 and huh. we still can't start internet sales because we don't have enough cheese sitting around in our uh-huh. cave
0: um angela we have to we only have a couple more minutes with you um i wanted to ask you one more thing about the um i was interested in the distribution like how did you get your distribution network set up uh in terms of you know because this is the big bottleneck for most uh, small producers is how do they get their product out there in large enough quantities to be able to start breaking even on the farm, or at least you know? Well,
3: we making it viable. We were lucky enough to start winning major awards uh, through the world through the American Cheese Society competition uh-huh. uh, in two thousand eight and two thousand nine. As soon as we started achieving that. Recognition, wholesalers came to
0: us. I see. So then they they helped you set up. So a we way were to quite lucky in that market. regard. Yeah, yeah. Well, Angela, we have like about I don't know sixty seconds left, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna hang you up any longer. You have a signing up at Stone Barns today, right? And you I had do? one
1: yesterday at Essex Street Market, right?
0: And it was fabulous. That's
3: great. Right? In front yeah. of
1: uh, Saksbe Cheesemongers.
0: That
3: Cheesemongers, and they were incredible, helping us. Absolutely.
0: sell books and and do cheese tasting. And cheese, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so this again, uh, Angela Miller, thank you so much for being on the show. The book is called Hay Fever, How Chasing a Dream on a Vermont Farm Changed My Life. Um, I highly recommend this, especially for anybody who has does have this dream, because it's. I thought it was really well done, Angela, sort of the joys and the sorrows uh, and <laughs> yeah. the labor uh, of putting together a farm. So if you had this dream, I definitely recommend reading this book to see whether or not this lifestyle is for you, because... <laughs> I can tell you—you you really need to be two people in the form of one body, as Angela Miller clearly is. So, um, good luck with the signing <laughs> today, you both Angela. So much. Thank you so much, and do come into the studio sometime um, soon and talk. Let's talk about cheese some more with you. i would love okay. to. Okay. That'd be great. Okay, okay. take care, Thank Angela. You. Thank you. Bye, bye. This is the main course on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, with my partner in crime,
1: Patrick Martins.
0: <laughs> we are uh, engineered today by Nat Wiener and produced by Jack Insley. We are located in the back of Roberta's at 261 Moore Street in Bushwick and sponsored today by Fairway Market. Our guest in studio now is Ron Silver. Thank you, Ron, for joining us today.
4: Thanks for having me
0: on. Oh, it's a pleasure. And Ron, you're the owner of Bubby's Restaurant Bar and Bakery. That's right. And you have two locations in Manhattan, right?
4: Uh, one, one in, in Manhattan, Brooklyn. One in Brooklyn and one in Yokohama, Japan. No way. Yes. Really? Why? They called me on the telephone.
0: And they said, we want you, Bubby's? They said that. They love Bubby's and they want it.
4: <laughs> they love Bubby's. They want it. It's going great there pretty funny
0: god talk about a dream come true do you spend a couple
4: of days
1: there a week or how did you go you go for the opening who did you partner with uh well i
4: have uh a a partner that's like a big restaurant group there and uh jr railroad which is a big company there japan railroad that's mad wow
0: So you so actually that's an interesting little story. Let's hear the whole story about. So they call you. Somebody comes from Japan. They they, they wind up in Bubby's for who knows what reason, right? right? And what they loved your pies.
4: Well, the Japanese seem to have a big thing for uh, American nostalgic things. Um, huh. So they do love pie. They, uh, and the pies. Who that are doesn't the,
5: love pie? I mean, well, come on.
4: Exactly. What's not to love? Yeah. Um. And last year was the 150th anniversary of the Americans opening up trade
0: uh-huh. with uh, with Admiral with Halsey,
4: Admiral Halsey. Good memory, and, uh, Commodore Perry. I and believe. Commodore
1: Perry. Right? He was one of the first guys to ever arrive
4: there, right? I believe he was. a they first parts with five gunboats outside of uh, yokohama and so yeah. open up well
0: they had been open year. to trade prior to that in centuries yes. earlier and then That's they right. had closed their borders and right. they had been closed for i don't know how many hundreds of years but really quite a long time
4: yeah a couple hundred years yeah
0: so it wasn't until what year was it like 18 18-
4: well 150 years ago from last year whatever that is whatever that 1860
0: okay. yeah something like that wow Mm. The Japanese are so extraordinary, mm. so amazing in so many ways. They are, yeah, really interesting people. I love. them. A lot them.
1: of the chefs I ask, I, I say, "What's the most refined cuisine in the world?" And most of them say j- Japanese oh, cuisine. Yeah.
4: Oh, I think that's really true. They're they're amazingly uh, detailed and uh, and
0: reverent in a, in a very interesting way about reverent, food,
4: obedient uh, and very polite with their food
1: yeah they have very little space so whatever they grow there is you know special
0: well i i went to a um (laughs) food arts uh actually sent me to a uh, demonstration at the french culinary institute a couple of years ago and i watched japanese chefs make rice for two and a half hours mm -hmm. and talk about it and they had actually had constructed a glass vessel $5,000 Five thousand dollars it cost them to to make this thing and bring it over to so that we could see the rice plumping up wow. during the demonstration. They made it only for this demonstration, and it was really it was a total eye opener into the whole sort of concept of how the Japanese approach their food and what and what is important to them about it.
4: Well, you know, it's it's amazing to me to see the difference between how uh, America deals with food and the Japanese. You know, getting all these sort of local. Ingredients and looking around for uh, sources for good farming in America is is a a challenge um, as as fun and interesting as as it is Uh, in Japan. Most of the ingredients are like that. You know, the eggs are beautiful. The milk is beautiful.
0: Yeah, they wouldn't have it any other way.
4: Right.
1: Even the um,
4: I once read a book. The concept of
0: commodity farming for the cheapest price, I think, just does not exist. Am I right, wrong?
4: Uh, they don't. They don't really have that. Although, well, they don't uh, have the space to produce. They're having that, a course. big problem with uh, with uh, farmers uh, an aging farm population, <clears throat> and it's been very regulated. And at the moment, they're they're having this big warehouse farming boom where they're where they're growing lots of stuff in warehouses with halogen lights and stacks. Huh. So it'll be interesting to see how that pans out.
0: Sounds like a model maybe we could use here in the States. I in once read a urban. book
1: on uh, obent- bento boxes mm. and yeah. how like in kindergarten, the elegance and organization of the bento box kind of spoke to how good the family was and how the teachers would almost judge the student via their parents and how they made the bento box. It's a real part of their social fabric. I mean, even something as simple as how you stack the food in a lunchbox.
4: Right. It's a, f- a far
1: cry from the snack well. <laughs> or the middle lunchbox.
5: <laughs> yeah, right.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, tell us about uh, Bubby's. brown paper bag. I mean, uh, I fell in love with Bubby's. I got there uh, for the first time a few weeks ago, um, and uh, they had this awesome placemat, uh, which had little snippets uh little like stars with a little bit of like a very short paragraph and a picture of all the different kind of terroirs or specialties that you embrace there so for instance there was a little thing on um alice waters you know and you explained to your diners on every single paper place matt there's a little thing about i think some uh hamburger place in phoenix or, or salt lake city salt lake city cotton bottom cotton bottom um and it was just so cool to see the whole kind of country represented through the lens of your menu mm-hmm. um anyway it's a very special place but tell us a little bit more about some of those yeah, kind of you visits have? that you've made around the country
4: well i'm i'm mostly with uh, i'm mostly concerned with where our recipes come from and where our ingredients come from and especially um do my best to be a sort of, de- you know, a repository for authentic regional American cooking. So, uh, all of these little things that you see, you know, nachos, which you know n- now have sort of degenerated into the Seven Eleven pump-your-own-cheese kind of situation. You know, once, <laughs> once, you know, was a was a, an amazing little snack that I believe Howard Cosell discovered or at least made famous. Really? Made by some guy named Nacho. Uh-huh. Uh,
1: or what he called him, Nacho.
4: <laughs> I believe that's what his name was. Oh, okay, good. That was his nickname. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there are just really, really special little dishes all over the country, you know, whether it's in New England, you know, the obvious... Like
0: Stuffies uh, in New England.
4: Stuffies. Uh, or, you know, any number of little gumbo houses in Louisiana or... Sure uh texas barbecue or uh i i grew up in salt lake city and they have the most amazing hamburgers there it's a it's a great burger town in fact it was in the times last year really? uh, all these burgers they have this insane pastrami burger and
0: uh ron do you know about the new york city food film festival do you uh, know george moats
4: well hamburger I, america i i don't know about that oh my god I, I believe he called me a couple weeks ago i
0: wouldn't be surprised <laughs> Because yeah. we're organizing the fourth annual New York Food Film Festival. And that is exactly what this festival is about. It's celebrating these real regional gems of food and recipes. Right. And people send their films in and, you know, and then they serve the food.
4: Oh, no, it's great.
0: It's really cool. So you'll be coming. I want to know all about that. I'm going to send you all the information. That sounds good. Yeah, yeah.
5: So, so you, well, did the restaurant on this prompt the trips? On your own.
1: Or did the trips prompt the restaurant?
4: Well, what really pri- I started I started Bubbies as a pie company, and the in 1990, in 1990 and the real uh, there were really two two things about it. One, I wanted to I wanted to be in the Pillsbury Bake Off, and um, why did you want to do that, Ron? Because the the gigantic prize money of twenty five thousand dollars seemed very appealing. That
0: somewhere. is gigantic in nineteen ninety,
4: and it it was, and. Uh, I also had never in my life had good pie, and you know, there. I, I've since met people who grew up with pie on farms, and and but I, all of my pies came from, say, Albertsons or McDonald's.
0: Oh, that's tragic.
4: <laughs> it's so tragic. Do you make tragic. your
0: pie with a lard crust, by the way?
4: Well, I do at home sometimes. Yeah, and, and sometimes I do lard butter crust at the restaurant. I think I'm going to start rendering lard, but a lot of it just depends on where we get the lard. Yes. And,
1: Heritage uh, Food sells lard. They just do,
4: <gasps> and I, I'm all over it. I'm all over we it.
1: We actually had Gramercy Tavern. You think um, about that, Patrick. Michael Anthony, the chef at Gramercy Tavern, had his staff take a vote as to whether or not they would allow lard crust to be served in the apple pie. And the, we won by like three votes. And so for, there was like a six-month period where they were serving uh, you know, lard crust pies. It was a savory dish. It makes dish. the
0: best crust, in my opinion.
1: Absolutely.
0: It's the lightest, the flakiest. Uh, it's got the best texture and the best flavor. I but think. the
1: waiter asked to tell you because if you're a vegetarian oh, yeah. and you order the apple pie you think that's a safe yeah a safe item but it's not
4: well i think it's a question of uh of people coming to an awareness of of the that being the best crust and uh, i think that's happening more and more i mean there there was such emphasis for for the longest time or there has been such emphasis on fat consumption and and now and I think how bad people, it was and how bad it was and 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 I think people are becoming aware of, of, you know, it depends on where the fat comes from, what what how the animals are raised, and you know, with with consumer awareness comes more uh, uh, liberty to to cook with better ingredients because. For the longest time, I don't know that I would have been able to get away with doing a lard crust, but probably not I, I because I think people
0: it. still roll their eyes to, to the uninitiated. There's still a good deal of eye rolling over that I've noticed.
4: Yeah, and and if you just get basic armor lard, it's not that it's, it's not, not, not that, that great. great. It doesn't even taste that great. But mm-hmm. if you render down some beautiful leaf lard from a really nice hog, it it really tastes good.
0: Yeah.
1: It's true. So it the does. original idea, you wanted to win the Pillsbury contest, Did you win?
4: Well, no, because I started practicing. I was a breakfast cook at Florent, um, which oh, I was no. somewhat overqualified for. So I would show up at 6 and cook breakfast, and then I was supposed to prep for the next day till from 11 to 2. Really? And I would do my prep while I was cooking, and then I would leave at 11. Right. So they told me that they weren't going to tolerate that. And so <laughs> I...
0: <laughs> that kind of gross insubordination,
5: wrong. Yeah,
4: gross insubordination. <laughs> s- he was strong-headedness. A, uh, he was a
1: cartographer, uh, wasn't he?
4: Florent was, but I didn't, you know... Is that why you would, designed... Hey, you by the way, the film out festival out the, has
1: a movie about him.
4: He's great. Yeah. I love him. But he, you know, he wasn't my direct boss. He would breeze in and out. He was very mm-hmm. uh, sort of bon vivant, we'll say. Definitely. Yeah. Um, <clears throat>
0: Only a bon so, vivant would have come up with a place like Florent. Yeah, really. no, I
4: I love that place. Yeah. I love cooking for all those transvestites in the morning. It was, it was a
0: Absolutely. Great
4: great thing. And I worked down in the I worked down on uh Horatio Street before that, so I really knew all the people down there. Uh-huh. Uh so I I sort of made an agreement with the chef that I would also make all their desserts.
0: Fantastic. Which th-
4: made made it so I couldn't really leave till 11:15. And so <laughs> then Uh, then she fired me, uh, and I, I told her that I was going to start a pie company and they became my first client. Uh, you know, they were buying all their desserts for me.
0: So even though they, the gross insubordination paid off because they were your first, you got to start somewhere, right?
4: Pushed me out into the real world of uh, being unemployable.
0: No more breakfast (laughs) cooking for trannies.
4: Well, I still cook for plenty of trannies. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Did you work with my friend Erica Demain? She worked there also.
4: Uh, blonde,
0: uh, redhead, little teeny Italian girl. It's possible. Yeah.
4: Nineteen eighty nine. Who knew? I don't know. <laughs> I don't remember anything from back then.
0: I'm kind of long. I only remember the story because, because I've told it
4: so many yeah, times. Yeah, right. Because
0: somebody told me I worked there. <laughs> <laughs>
4: exactly. There's a picture. <laughs>
0: <laughs> i do remember that kind of thing so how did yeah.
1: you transition from pie company to restaurant
4: well that i we basically I, I had a partner back then we were sort of uh borrow kitchens overnight when other people weren't using them there was wow. uh there was a little um uh fran jacobs used to make uh these little tart shells for catering companies and she would do that during the day and then we would be in there at night using her kitchen and that was that, that lasted a month and then we moved into this place on hudson and north Moore, uh where the the business that was there had closed down and he, oh i
0: know exactly where peter it was Peter Dent. yeah peter dent yeah i worked in that space before it was peter dent uh-huh it was called as you like it foods
4: right yeah hess oil
0: yes Yes, Margaret Hess. Margaret Hess. She fired me for gross insubordination. Oh no, I quit over the pates. But whatever. I
4: I love Margaret Hess because she (laughs) built my restaurant for me. Oh, that's great. uh, Without me ever having met her. Um, So we were baking pies in Peter Dent's kitchen. That was
0: a nice little kitchen.
4: It was, and uh, and a couple, you know, maybe in October, I was I started asking Peter if I could just open up for one day at Thanksgiving to sell pies, and he said no, Uh, and then somehow he just. Decided three days before Thanksgiving to let us open up for one day. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So we cleaned the place up, got it open, sold a bunch of pies, then we cooked Thanksgiving dinner there and and got drunk. And decided that since Peter was out of town, we'd open up the next day until he got back.
0: <laughs>
5: and
4: he didn't. He didn't.
0: That gross insubordination just was not just at Florent. I can no, see. It's, <laughs>
4: It's a general mischievousness, it's I'd a, say. It's,
0: it's kind of a character trait, right?
4: Yeah. But we really, uh, well, so he didn't get back for three weeks. And by the time he got back, we were. You were booming. We were busy.
0: Oh, that's great. And
4: then he just so sort I'm of fabulous. rolled his eyes and we negotiated a deal in April. Uh, so it took that long of just wow. sort of negotiating. And that's how we opened up. Hmm. That's beautiful. Two, what a great two story. Two or three tables and paper yeah. plates and. Uh huh pizza oven
0: well that neighborhood i mean it's so sleek and chic now but i mean in those days there was really nothing going on down there
4: no there i were, mean they built know, a couple of high rises but 55 gallon drums fires and uh, yeah know, all that stuff it
0: was it was it was funky yep mary cleaver was right around the corner from there there too she was and so was uh was it trois petits cochon was right down uh, yeah, the street right on next North door Moore? right yeah.
4: next door they
1: yeah. had a restaurant
4: no no they they that
0: a, was their warehouse
4: yeah
1: oh i see
0: yeah.
4: Because one but my Cleaver was working out of her loft. Yeah.
1: One of my favorite restaurants, D'Artagnan had a restaurant on 48th Street uh, between 2nd and 3rd Avenue, which was all their kind of cured stuff. I oh. Don't know, oh, that was Trump great. I
0: loved that. That had, like, was a Ariane's medieval restaurant. Night yeah. The,
1: So um, now it's a
0: very nice place. I want to talk a little
1: bit about, you know, how you get to source such great ingredients and yet still keep your menu so cheap. So talk a little bit about the history of the food at your restaurant, how it's evolved, you know, the trends, what it was at the beginning and what it is now. And I mean, it's a real inspiration, I think, on how to buy great food and not have to charge an arm and a leg for it.
4: Well, you know, my first menu, the first day that we opened after Thanksgiving, we were serving Thanksgiving leftovers, uh, sandwiches, turkey sandwiches with stuffing and cranberry sauce. Um, I've always really tried to make everything from scratch, and um, also I've tried to keep my prices as low or as reasonable as possible. Um, And you know, it's really my goal to keep you know keep my menu items under 25 bucks if if possible so
1: can i ask you a question about that is it cheap i know you make your own soda you make everything yourself i mean so many things is it cheaper to do that or more expensive well
4: some things it's cheaper to make the the soda is cheaper to make because we just buy a bunch of you know we buy everything and make big batches of it uh but you know some things are a lot more expensive it's 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 you know Four times the price to buy local eggs, the milk is a little more expensive, the meat is a lot more expensive. You know, sorry. The, well, not just not just heritage meat, but also you know slope farms meat. It's you know like, uh, I mean the the biggest thing that I sell is hamburgers, and so I I could get burger from some you know basic feedlot meat for seventy nine or eighty nine cents a pound, and you know I pay you know four fifty to five fifty a pound for this. Um, so, uh, I guess the answer to that is by making a lot of things from scratch, I sort of cut out some middleman and, uh, you know, it, it all works out in the end. Um, and we also have a, we have a good clip of, of people coming through, you know, we feed anywhere from four or five to 5,000 people a week. Wow. Uh, and a lot of those are brunch. So, you know, it's brunches it really helps to set off some food costs for the rest of the week. But I, you know, we, we really try to watch what we're doing and don't waste. And everybody's very respectful of our ingredients. And, uh, I, I, I think that it's, it's possible if you're really watching what you're doing to, to be smart and, you know, and if you're, you know, if you're using the fat from, you know, from the hogs to, to put into sausage, we just started making our own sausages and, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways to sort of be smart about it and not just frugal, but, you know, not wasting, not making sure that you're not putting too big a portions on the plate so that it's going in the garbage and all that stuff.
1: One thing I admired about your restaurant is that it uses is Heinz. So many people fail to make a better tasting ketchup than Heinz. I think it's almost impossible. But they're you- changing their formula. You know that, right? Well, um, they're
4: putting. They're taking out, some, taking of the out salt. some of the salt. I think that's it's not going to be the same. It's lame. Well, I you mean, you can let's add see. salt
1: to the thing, I guess. <laughs> yeah, but he makes. A, he buys Heinz's organic ketchup, mm-hmm. which is one of the only ketchups I've ever tasted that's better than the actual Heinz. Well, the
4: funny thing about it is that they, you know, instead of using corn syrup, they use sugar, which is what they used before. Of people start so it, it tastes like old-fashioned Heinz ketchup. It's, I mean, the fact that it's organic doesn't matter to me at all. Uh-huh. Uh, but it, it tastes really good. It tastes like ketchup. It's a lot cleaner than this, you know, regular Heinz ketchup that's got
0: i don't think i've tried that
4: it's delicious i do
0: remember making ketchup as a child um and it my parents were astonished we were always making things like sauerkraut and ketchup and candles and stuff and my (laughs) parents were astonished to find that it was like six bushels of tomatoes made about two bottles of ketchup i mean it's like (laughs) the rendering process i mean you cook those babies way down to get that thick you know delicious condiment well yes. i've
4: i've i used to make my own ketchup and i've never found that i could come up to the you know to the standards yeah. really you know, they have 57
1: you know. ingredients in it yeah I mean, <laughs> I guess just because it it's mass produced i've always admired the heinz uh, ketchup bottles for never breaking considering how oh, hard yeah. you have to pound it to get the ketchup out yes
4: yeah, you don't want to get hit with one of those <laughs> no
0: definitely not
1: um, well, that's very, very interesting. And uh, what else? I mean, then your menu today is, um, you know, you have it's a barbecue component. I mean, that's hard and unusual to do barbecue, right? I mean, right. in the city. What well, style of barbecue is it?
4: We do a, a few styles of barbecue. The first barbecue I had was in Austin, Texas. And I, I was just back there uh, in February. And it, it, they make some good barbecue out there. Um, but I also competed in uh, Memphis in May, Whole Hog cooking which is a a real eye-opening experience what was the uh, cash
1: prize for that one
4: well if if i would have come anywhere close to winning the, the cash prize is fifty thousand dollars uh the first Sweet. year i did it i came in dead last and there's no prize for that
1: <laughs> there's no prize
4: uh, not
1: even a booby prize
4: but then the next year i came smack down in the, you know right in the middle 22 out of 47 so i was that's not bad i was happy with that
0: yeah you're competing against some very serious pitmasters in those barbecue competitions
4: and they know all the rules and there's a, yeah. there's not only a blind box but there's also a three judges that come to your site and if you're the rest of your team is uh derelict bond traders your site is not going to look that good you know the, the rest of these guys have uh, <laughs> lawn dwarves and you know like <laughs>
1: It is somewhat random, the judging process, because not every judge tastes your food. You just maybe get six out of a hundred possible judges to taste it, and then the time it takes to transport the food to the judging station, and then by the time it gets to the people, I mean, the the components of it change a bit.
4: Right, but then these big rigs can fit three or four hogs on their, you know, so every time a judge shows up, they can pick the most beautiful hog and take the best part, whereas... If you are, uh, you know, if, if you've got a little rig and you're just pulling out of a, you know, one one animal, then you really don't have a chance.
1: Well, um, this has uh, been great. I hope you can stay. Do you have to, because we have another guy coming in and uh, we could maybe transition. Uh, we never really talked about your farm upstate and that's kind of one of the themes of yeah. the show. Is, Our next people. guest is
0: Manny Howard. Who uh, wrote a book called *My Empire of Dirt* about his backyard farm in Brooklyn, which Uh was kind of—I wouldn't say a dare, but it was an Uh assignment—and it became a total obsession. That sounds great. Completely hilarious book, which I strongly recommend that everyone buy immediately. Here it is, and Manny should be right outside. Did you show
1: everyone on the who's uh, listening?
0: Uh, yeah, uh, here you go. Here it is.
1: <laughs> now, the cover is um, going to be different in the bookstore. So just uh, for people who are seeing this cover, it's going to be different looking in the bookstore. This is You have an older version that's of right. it? Yes, that's okay. right,
0: yes. So, okay. I have the medieval version, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so we're going to take a kid. short
0: musical break well, now. Well,
1: actually, it's not musical. It's, uh, it's the vocal oh, music. Oh, it's the vocal portion of, of our break. Steve Pope, who's going to be talking oh, about heritage poultry recipes.
2: My only son. Off to war, he's unafraid to live and die for a people who don't even know who he is. And I understand now just what you did, cause this is my son, my only son, and I get.
6: Is Steve Chef Steve with Good Shepherd Poultry here in Kansas. going to talk a little bit today about brining chicken, something that people have been doing for centuries, it seems. Brining is really an interesting process, and it can really enhance the, uh, the flavor of, of the bird. So we're going to talk a little bit about that and how, how we go about it. Brining by itself is an osmotic process. That's why you use salts with it, and, and you use water. And that water and salt actually uh, permeates a certain barrier in the, in the flesh that allows you to uh, make the bird more tender or appear to be more tender, more tasty, and certainly enhancing the flavor of the bird. Uh, I have a brining uh, recipe that I like to use. It's relatively simple, and it's something that you might do, and then you'll see the, the response of how the difference of, of the bird tastes after you've cooked it so let's look at how to brine a chicken pretty fast first of all you need to have a few rules that take place one of them is, is that you always want to brine in a non-reactive container such as glass or porcelain crockery plastic and, and stainless steel are ok but you want to stay away from aluminum copper and wood they are not uh, not the containers that you want to use another thing is, is that uh... after you do your brining you want to make sure that the chicken is uh rinsed in very cold, uh, running water. You want to pat it dry with a clean towel. And then uh, the time frames are really important on how long you work with that brine. And usually a whole chicken, you'll want to brine four to eight hours, half a chicken, about three to six. And if you do a bone-in or skin-on breast chicken, you'll do one to two hours. And then you go on down to the legs and thighs, which about 30 to 45 minutes, um... Uh, maybe a little longer, uh, during that time the brining slowly, slowly works its way into the, to the chicken flesh. Here's what I usually use I use a gallon of cold water, and then I use a cup of kosher salt, about a half a cup of sugar. And one thing about sugar is it is absorbed into the flesh and it helps to hold on the water, which, uh, keeps the, uh, meat even more moist when it is cooked. Uh, so you use about a half a cup of sugar there, and then you add some flavorings. And this is really up to you. I use a natural maple flavoring, and if I'm going to roast outside and uh, in a pit or something of this nature, I really like using that uh, that maple flavoring. However, there's other things that you can use along with that. Would be chopped onions, garlic, celery, things of this nature. Uh, you can also uh, Use your typical herbs, things of that, such as majorum or thyme and sage. You make sure that the, uh, the water itself are brought to a boil, and you stir that until it's completely dissolved. I mean, then you remove it from the heat, and that's when you add your flavoring. You cover it with a, uh, a lid, and you allow it to cool completely. This is real important to make sure that it cools down. Then you, uh, this is, you, know, you use a half a gallon of that whole gallon of water. After you're through, you're, it's cooled down. You add the remaining one half gallon of water, and then you want to refrigerate that down to below 40 degrees uh, before you even put your chicken in. Uh, you can cut it in half as far as the recipe is concerned, depending on how much chicken that you'll be using. It's really important that you keep the whole chicken submerged, I use a heavy plate with a flat-bottom bowl, and it works real well to make sure that the bird is covered. Uh, you need to keep that uh, brine and chicken in cold during during the brining, so in the refrigerator it's the best place to put it. If not, an uh, insulated cooler works well, and it will uh, do its job as long as that temperature is is cool. A lot of things that help with brining, we're making sure that you have good, healthy birds that are uh, ready to receive that, that the skin is intact on the bird. Of course, we feel that the heritage bird is the best if you're going to do this. It is, uh gives an uh, increase in the flavor, and it helps retain all those wonderful juices that we, uh, that we look at. Osmotic process is what we're looking at here, and it's very interesting to see how that works. I'm not going to go into the whole... Uh, process itself as far as the the scientific approach to it but it's been done for many years People do it a lot of times for Thanksgiving or holidays with their turkeys, but uh, it makes it kind of nice to be able to do that with uh, just your uh, non-holidays when you're making one of your best chicken recipes. the The thing is, is that uh, a lot of people think that you can absorb a lot of salt into that, and if you have the right proportions, you will not absorb a tremendous amount of salt or have a too salty flavor on those birds. When you do, when you do that, it's. Uh, One of those kind of things that is is, uh, a balance. You have to follow the instructions. And you can also find those instructions on my website, which is www.heritagechef.com. And it gives you a little bit more information about the brining process. I'm going to talk a little bit about a recipe that I really, really like. And it's an interesting recipe because it uses some combinations of of different flavors that are not normally in... um, in uh, a regular recipe, and I'm going to give that to you. Basically, it's called cowboy chicken, and what you want to do is um, cut the chicken in half down the center so that you flay it open and spread it open flat, and you make a rub, and this rub is just great. You use two tablespoons of kosher salt. You use two tablespoons of ground chili, two tablespoons of sugar, raw sugar. It can be brown sugar. Uh, you want to use about a tablespoon of black pepper, a tablespoon of five spice powder, which as you can find in the Asian markets, it's used in a lot of the Asian uh, food, and you need a tablespoon of that. You Need a half a tablespoon of uh, granulated garlic, half a tablespoon of onion powder. Then you use a half a teaspoon of lemon powder, and if you if you use lemon lemonade, and that's exactly right, out of the package lemonade and then you use a fourth of a teaspoon of cayenne pepper and then a fourth of a teaspoon of celery seeds. You need to cover the bird, rub the bird completely, uh, generously, and then you put it in the top of a broiler pan, baking at about 165 degrees internal temperature. And at the very last, you need to turn up that temp to a very high 425 to crisp that skin, and the internal uh, temperature would be about 175 then you take it out, you glaze it with this wonderful glaze, a simple glaze of melted butter, both vinegar and honey. And you uh, put it back into the oven, let it uh, rest a little bit after about 10 minutes, and get ready to eat something that's very unique in flavor, very tasty. So this is uh, Chef Steve giving you some information about brining today. I suggest you try it. And like I say, you can go on our site, which is www.heritagechef.com and enjoy cooking see you next week
2: love is blind and so was I when I felt for you you lit me up with all those fancy words just like a fuse filled my head with love and lies a memory can't erase not long before you your dynamite had blown up in my face you
0: We are back. This is the main course on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, with my partner in crime.
1: Patrick Martins.
0: Thank you, Patrick. (laughs) Our show today is sponsored by Fairway Market, and I'm going to read you some copy about Fairway Market in case you're not familiar. It is like no other market. It is my favorite market. What do you have in Westchester? pelham to be specific that offers you free parking and under one roof the most the most enormous selection of organic fruits and vegetables organic and all natural groceries the finest butchers and prime and grass-fed meats and poultry on earth the most expertly chosen seafood olive oils cheeses and the lowest priced national brands of standard groceries you have fairway it is like no other market Fairway is opening in Pelham on Wednesday, the 14th of April. So that opened already. And for more information on this market and on their other locations in Red Hook, uh, in um, 74th Street in Broadway, and 135th Street and Broadway, or 12th Avenue. 125th. 127th, no? Like it goes for miles. It's like 131st or 127th to
1: 134th. You read that like an expert. That was a test, Katie. You passed.
0: (sighs) Thank you. I know. My next career is going to be doing voiceover just so I can actually make some money before I die. Anyway, for more information, please go to www.fairwaymarket.com, and uh, in coming weeks we have uh, Steve Jenkins who will be joining us for another little primer on cheeses, olive oils, his new obsession, and uh, just the grocery business in general. We we look forward to welcoming Steve back. We have some great supporters. Yeah,
1: we have some great people: Marion Nessel.
0: Joan Gusso.
1: Joan Digusso, yeah, Amanda Hesser.
0: I know you, Patrick. Unlo- he, he unpacked the Rolodex, and all of a sudden we've got these celebrities coming on. It's like you know, it's it's really it's overwhelming. We have
1: um. Michelle Obama and Michael Pollan That's right. uh, calling in? No, we don't. That'd be cool. <laughs>
0: I bet we could have Michael Pollan calling in. You know him. Well, he should come in. Anyway, our guests today are um, we've been we've been going for a sort of a rural no an agrarian lineup today. So our first guest was Angela Miller with her uh, book Hay Fever about uh, not not chucking the life of the high powered literary agent, but actually fitting another completely different life of being the proprietress of Consider Bardwell Farm in Vermont. Uh, where she produces award-winning cheeses. Um, we have Ron Silver in the studio today, who um, just wrapped up the first segment with us and is about to uh, come back for our second segment. Um, Ron is the owner of Bubby's Restaurant and Bar, Bar Restaurant Bar and Bakery. Um, he has three locations, including one in. Japan, improbably enough. And uh, now let us welcome to the studio Manny Howard. It's the first time you've been on our show. Um, Manny Howard is a uh, longtime food writer. Um, we have uh, quite a few friends in common, I suspect. And um, <clears throat> he is the author of the new, newly released, newly published My Empire of Dirt, How One Man Turned His Big City Backyard into a farm and I'm just I'm going to read a little bit of this copy just to give it some context because the story is so bizarre and improbable that it, it does need some kind of um, explanation. For seven months, Manny Howard, a lifelong urbanite, woke up every morning and ventured into his 800-square-foot backyard to maintain the first farm in Flatbush, Brooklyn, in generations. His goal was simple, to subsist on what he could produce on this farm and only this farm for at least a month. The project came at a time in Manny's life when he most needed it, even if his family, and especially his wife, the unbelievably beautiful and apparently inexhaustibly patient and loving Lisa who I just met outside with the two beautiful children. I mean, I don't know how this woman did this. (laughs) You would have been six feet deep, baby, had you been mine. Anyway, (laughs) but a farmer's life he discovered after a string of catastrophes, including a tornado, countless animal deaths, natural, accidental, and inflicted, and even a severed finger. Let's see it.
7: It got better. Whoa, oh, that's wow. gnarly, though, man. It's awesome, it's a toe. Okay. <laughs>
0: For
1: our listeners out there, it's the fifth digit they should be the fifth digit, and it's, that's it's right. a
0: fascinating sort of lumpy uh, thing now. Really mm. interesting, but you know, come by honestly, Manny. Come by it very honestly. Table
7: saw, one honest table saw. Does it? Can you <laughs> feel yeah, it? That's all it takes. Yeah, um, it actually. Uh, well,
0: it came off, and then they reattached it.
7: Well, it was swinging by this part, which Sweet. is where the nerves and the. Actually, major blood how cool vessel is was that, so that's
1: man. lucky that it didn't sever.
7: Uh, yeah, <laughs> so I don't know. It had I mean, some nerves. Well, that joint? was the good lucky. part
1: to keep connected.
7: Yeah, if you're going to keep I'm something right. connected, that would be the part. Although the knuckle part is a drag. If it gone through the bone, apparently, I'd be in better shape.
6: Hmm.
0: Oh well. You know. Yeah,
7: I just broke my finger.
6: So silly, I, la vie. I understand. Need that
7: one that much. Yeah, it's amazing how often it gets caught in my pocket when I <laughs> <laughs> out of my pocket. <laughs> Anyway, all very visual though for right. Uh, my
0: <laughs> empire of dirt is a ground level examination, trenchant, touching, and outrageous of the cultural reflex to control one of the most elemental aspects of our lives. Actually, I'm going to backtrack a minute because the easily, to me, the most interesting part of this book, um aside from the hilarious uh, tone of it and the unbelievable misadventures that you had, was um your politics about it, which I or the sort of philosophy about it, which I really appreciated. And I'm just going to read this little bit here. Um, The impetus, let's see, the impetus for this project began as an assessment of the locavore movement. We now think more about what we eat than ever before. And we were talking about this earlier, Ron, um, buying organic for our health and local for the environment, and often making those decisions into political statements in the process. And that's something that, um, you know, Patrick and I have talked about a lot on the show that sort of, you know, if it's not the very best it can be, and it's local, then shouldn't we still be looking for the very best there is, even if it's grown in Yemen, as you famously said about apricots? Um, I
1: think it's Yemen. Really? Yemen.
0: Jack, is it Yemen or Yemen?
1: <laughs> Yemen. And I know that
7: because the bodega where I used to live, uh, they all work right. All yeah. right. There's Why actually a huge add? divide there from north to south. It's pretty bad.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, anyway, let's not get into the (laughs) Yemenite (laughs) politics here. But anyway, so Manny, tell us, let's, okay, so so now I've I've given you this ripe intro, um, including uh, discussing your dissected, bisected finger there. Uh, So what was the most challenging aspect of this project? This was an assignment for New York Magazine, right?
7: Yeah, that's right. It started as a a good old-fashioned New York Magazine, thumb in the eye to locavores everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, And quickly, pretty much as soon as I started it, um, I forgot everything about the assignment what we, was
1: the assignment originally
7: well it was uh, I got a phone call from uh, from an assigning editor um, who said magic words to any freelance writer was it just came out of an editorial meeting and we've got the perfect Manny Howard store story for you uh, do you have a backyard um, and I said yes and they said and she said uh, will you turn into a farm and live off it for at least a month and I said yes because it meant not hustling magazine stories for at least seven months by my, I think, ambitious math. Um, <laughs> and I also negotiated for an unlimited expense account because I didn't know exactly what it would cost to uh, turn my backyard into a Yeah, no a kidding.
0: And how much did it cost,
1: by the way?
7: Um Eleven thousand uh, dollars. Be-
0: <laughs> Eleven thousand dollars to transform eight hundred square feet. It's
1: eight hundred square feet. Okay.
0: Yeah. That's so right. that's twenty by forty.
7: And then a garage. I have, I have a um, uh, where we live in Flatbush is uh, we have a driveway which I used also and and a garage. So that was the barn turned into the barn very quickly. Mm-hmm.
0: And and uh, a front yard.
7: Yeah. yeah. Um, and I and and uh, you
0: had a rec room in the basement. A rumpus room, the as rumpus. they used to call them, a rumpus room where you did uh, grow lights or something.
7: Yeah, I am. Um, I I killed thousands of seedlings in the. In the
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean now, Manny. What training did you have for this project? I mean, you were, I mean, you were as at sea as I would have been.
7: I'm a generalist, you know. I, I, yeah. Uh, put, my, I have a I have a broad knowledge that's puddle deep. So that's just know, like me. Makes, makes me, you know, I usually. <laughs> no just enough to be dangerous at whatever it is eh, I'm, I'm doing there you go um yeah um
0: you exemplify a
7: little knowledge being a dangerous thing yeah. that's right yeah and uh, and the arrogance of course which i uh, come to any project with mm-hmm. um also propels me <laughs> at least a month forward
1: um and I then, like how this didn't start from any political exactly, thing this was started d- just essentially because, a dare yeah you have to do it for <laughs> it's like for an article but you're doing it for money but it became much more
7: yeah that's right I mean you know you could you could uh, fairly if ungenerously call this stunt journalism uh, you know at its source um, luckily for my you know soul I I, um, I turned my back on the stunt journal part uh, pretty quickly and uh, took no notes except for the midnight ramblings to friends on, you know, in emails, uh, which luckily were still around when it came time to (laughs) (laughs) figure out not only the book, the article. Um, Oh,
0: yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that.
7: (laughs) 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 Now, the article was the furthest thing from my mind for most of the time. And the most challenging thing was to get out of the backyard. Um, You know, I wake up every morning, put on my pull on the car hearts and the work shirt and feed what was hungry water what was thirsty fix what was broken and try to heal what was dying which was usually a fair amount of stuff um as soon as i mean even before the animals showed up there was a fair amount of dying going on Um, it's like
1: being a doctor yeah you're constantly without a medical degree
7: but covered in filth most of the (laughs) time
1: (laughs) so tell us what some of these things were like how did you when you got this assignment you were like okay i'm going to do a farm what did you decide to grow how did you decide to grow what you know right. what was your mandate, and what did you add on to it? On
7: top of the on top of the uh, the, the vegetables, um, which primarily at the end of the har- at the beginning of the harvest, there was a great uh, variety of stuff. But I ended up with uh, collard greens, eggplant, squash, some green onions, um, and it's a callaloo, which is very difficult. I don't know how I got it from one end of the harvest to the other, but I did. Um, considering all the other things that didn't make it. Um Tomatoes
0: so, didn't make it? No, no,
7: I had tomatoes. Um yeah. but I sort of assumed tomatoes as a yeah. baseline. Right. Although that's you know, making any assumptions in this situation was is the was the wrong thing to do because I also assumed potatoes and uh they were, horrible, uh, they and, were and a horrible. and tragic failure. failure. Um, a tragic my, failure. My my you know, the 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 food stuff that's uh uh seen populations through famine since before recorded time. Uh, I managed to dig up my crop, and I had I could find five shirt button size.
0: Yes, there's spuds. A, there's actually a photograph in the book of the of the little spuds with a quarter next to them for scale. And yeah, shirt button about
7: potatoes. Well, I got a fr- I got a call from a friend in Montana who's you know has a working farm um, and goat ranch, uh, and he blamed the uh, online purveyor, which ah. um, I thought it was very generous. He's not usually not that generous, um, and uh, I have no idea where I went wrong,
0: but you haven't tried to repeat that experiment. I mean, I do now, know I have. Actually, once you have gotten your, I mean, you have all the infrastructure in place now. So, are you continuing to maintain the farm? Um,
7: I'm more interested in maintaining the marriage now. So we have a a
0: righteous, a or very righteous decision on your part. We
7: have a we have a marriage preserving compromise, which is one fifth chicken coop, one fifth vegetable garden, two fifths. Is that right? Nope, three fifths lawn. Uh huh. Okay. Um, So...
0: Something we can all live with. Yeah. Yes.
7: I never thought, you know, that would be the great marriage compromise of 2010, but it is.
0: (laughs) Hey, listen, the fact that this woman didn't pack up those two kids and move on. Well, she did pack once.
7: She did pack once.
0: I'm telling you. That's when
7: I showed up with 25-day-old meat birds um, without a place to put them. Uh, Oh, man. I was panicking. I had a lot of meat to make and none of it was getting made.
0: But why did you... Why were you so worried about meat? I mean, obviously Uh, you need some meat because you you can't just make a, a, your diet cannot just be collard greens and callaloo, but. Well,
7: you certainly can't get on the cover. I mean, this is, you know, giving, you know, the lie, but you certainly can't get on the cover of New York Magazine if you grew a lot of vegetables and ate them for a month. So there was going to be.
0: I see. Because there 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 has has to be killing involved. Well.
7: It has to be animal protein, you know. Well, you've got
0: to go for the shock factor of like, you know, plucking chickens or skinning rabbits. Raising eggs would have been
7: fine, I think, for them. I don't think, you know, I mean, they are the editors of New York Magazine. It's not like they get out from behind their desks all that often. God bless (laughs) them. Right. Let me ask you this. What was it about your work that
0: made you the perfect writer for this assignment? Or were they just stroking your ego there?
7: I come from a long line of rodeo clowns, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Tough gig, (laughs) yeah. Give it to Manny; he'll do anything. Mm -hmm. I I see, uh, and he's got a backyard. Um, But I showed them—you know—I imported nine tons of uh, East End topsoil to cover my uh, otherwise clay substrate uh, backyard.
0: And the the story of digging the dry well—Manny had to dig an eight-foot-deep hole because the clay substrate, of course, the water just runs, you know, horizontally. So it stays there; it doesn't absorb.
7: And all the neighbors are hardscaped, is what landscapers call paving, right? Mm. Um, and so all their water went to the most porous place, which was the least porous surface I know, which is clay. So every time it rained, there'd be standing water for days. It would turn oh, into in your Baffin Island of mosquitoes. So you know, we could actually beauty. never use the place, the backyard before I turned it into a farm. So I have.
0: So th- you, know, you have improved. There
7: is lawn there, which there would never have been. before.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: so what followed? So I, I got the fruits and vegetables, and then right. the, the the meat chickens came in. Right. Uh, did you raise goats or anything like that? Well, the goat. Rabbits I thought about first. a goat
7: for a while because in the negotiations for the for the story, um, I I got exemptions for salt, pepper, and coffee grinds. And in my zeal to do this right, I said if there's going to be milk on the farm, I'm going to grow it. So I thought maybe I'd get a goat. Uh, I ended up drinking a lot of black coffee because the thought that I'm a little attention challenged, so mm. easily distracted, and I thought if I let, had a goat back there with all the vegetables that I was planning to eat, it's and I, you know, the that phone rang or there was something shiny in the corner, I would uh, lose most of, you know, most of yeah, most what of I your crop. Yeah. so no goat. Uh, the first attempt was um, a tilapia pool because tilapia being a cockroach. Um, of, of the aquatic world, of the aquatic yes. world, and the you know, and therefore the favorite on restaurant menus everywhere. Um, and
0: should be, I mean,
7: sure. If you can raise something in a fetid puddle, yeah, you can, and sell <laughs> it and for it nine dollars a you. pound, you should. <laughs> yeah, you should More do it as often, it. Uh, you know, early and often as possible. Um, yeah. Beer shack. <laughs> 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 so, um, you know. The, Tilapia originally came from the Nile, but I, uh, mani- I, I managed to find a place on Butler Street uh, that farms it on the curb uh, uh-huh. in, on flatbed trucks. And right. I approached the owner of the place and he said uh, that he didn't have any fish on the, on the premises. And we went back and forth a bit. And I think he didn't believe me. I didn't believe me when I said that I was a f- building a farm in Flatbush and that I just needed his broodstock or 10 of them yeah. um, at retail price. Um, I think he figured I was law Johnny Law of some kind. Or well, that whatever. happened
0: to you quite a bit because uh, you described going into the um, the store that sold the hydroponic equipment. And um, he's wearing sort of a, in this description, Manny is wearing a Miami Vice outfit, um, which I'm really disappointed that retire. you didn't come in with a Miami Vice outfit today. I, I should have asked you to please wear I don't that. Know
7: what got into my head? But he
0: goes into the shirt. store with a Miami Vice outfit, and and he's he's asking all these random questions about hydroponics, <laughs> which clearly indicated that he was a narc, and he was appropriately uh, responded to.
7: <laughs> I was handed from one sales like one pissed was, off salesman I my head off over that yeah I was handed from one pissed off salesman to another until I was given the manager who then lectured me on the science of hydroponics which so, you didn't
0: want to know anything about but you just I wanted
7: to I just wanted to grow broccoli man as quickly as possible <laughs> they, they
0: would say <laughs> like, what do you want to grow I don't know vegetables I don't care, <laughs> I don't care. what
7: grows what grows fast and I'm like, <laughs> said, how about that rig there it looks like it fits inside oh, a pre-war God. apartment um, closet like, it does I was yeah. like what do you grow in there it's like <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you want. I said, like, I want to grow yeah. blo- broccoli in there. <laughs> okay, no, broccoli's, that too
2: yeah, yeah,
7: broccoli's too complicated. <laughs> too So I left with a lecture on hydropo- the basics of hydroponics and a $42 self published book on hydroponic lettuce growth. Yeah. And, and, and I was pissed. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then I so, I, so I gave up on uh, tilapia after I was chased away for about three weeks um, by my friend on Butler Street. And then I moved straight to meat rabbits. Yeah, um, following the great tradition of rabbitry. That was uh,
0: that was a painful episode.
7: And uh, Why is that? Because what was painful about it? I couldn't get my rabbits to do what rabbits wow. are fabled. To yeah, what, the rabbits to would not another uh, potato respond. Moment.
0: They just, you know, they yeah. weren't performing. Like wow. most people. You and know, there were a series of mishaps with the rabbits, which we don't need to go into, but in, you know. It was, yeah, it was I used not to drag easy. them
7: out at dawn. on this everything was two stories because in New York we build up because we can't build out right so everything was high including the chicken coop and I'd drag them out into the early morning light because like everybody else rabbits apparently like to do it first thing in the morning Uh Um, and I'd stand there introduce the buck to the doe cup of coffee standing there in my underpants waiting for them to do it and they just wouldn't do it over and over and over and over again. Well, maybe because you that were watching. Well, I, I tried <laughs> that. I, I did, you know, I mean, after a while, I thought, ah, so I looked, I'll look, you know, I'll use
4: <laughs> you
7: peripheral vision. Mother, yeah. yeah, pretend it turned to read the newspaper, out that one of them was no? really old. Yes. That your the, the the dough old gray lady. Was sort of the equivalent
0: got, of 72. I, yeah, oh, my
7: God. I got sold a retirement home rabbit, and, you know, who's described <laughs> to me as a good mother, which uh. I should have thought, you know.
0: <laughs> that like, could have been a warning signal. Good
7: mother. Good grandmother. Yeah, and the other oh, ones were good. not very good mothers. They mostly ate their children. Yes, um, that was mm-hmm. that must have been very upsetting. Yeah, especially since Lisa and my daughter Heath were the only people to witness it. Oh um, my actually, god! Actually, I think Lisa knocked Heath to the ground so she wouldn't yeah. see what you know was going. <laughs> Meanwhile, on
0: Meanwhile, she was gagging herself. Um, yeah. I think uh, Jack was signaling to me a minute ago. We need to take a short break here, um, but we'll be right back with Manny Howard and Ron Silver and more on um, and my Empire of Dirt and Ape Silver. No back. This is the main course on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, with my partner in crime, Patrick Martins. Um, Our guests today are uh, Manny Howard, who is uh, here to talk about his new book, My Empire of Dirt, How One Man Turned His Big City Backyard Into a Farm. And he's joined by Ron Silver, a guest from an earlier segment, uh, who is the proprietor of Bubby's uh, Restaurant and Bar in three locations, Manhattan, Brooklyn, and Japan. Um, our host today, our sponsor today, is Fairway Market, and um, we're here in the backyard of beautiful Robertas in Bushwick, Brooklyn.
1: Speaking about gardens, there was a big article about uh, about the, Robertas about well, Robertas and the, as being partners behind Brooklyn Grange, yeah, which is they've got forty thousand square feet on a rooftop in Long Island City.
0: Fantastic! Which are just
1: importing a. Couple million pounds of uh, soil, but it's actually not soil. It's a hybrid thing that is less heavy for the roof.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. You, you do. You can't just put. As my brother learned, you can't just put <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of pounds of dirt in a box on a rooftop. Why he York learned City. that
1: because it felt.
0: He learned the, it the hard way. Yeah, oh, yeah.
1: Because
7: now he It didn't actually fall hat. through,
0: but it was. It was starting to happen. So he had lugged this in. You know, like. Fifty-pound sacks up seven flights of stairs, and his walking on seventy. His walk up on seventy-second in Madison.
1: (laughs) Oh my god.
0: It was great moments, and, and he had a flower garden. Actually, he wasn't. This was long before the whole idea of raising your own vegetables in your, you know, city apartment became the popular pastime that it is today. But um, so, Manny, we were about to uh, move on from the meat rabbit experience to the chicken experience, and he, chickens have obviously been a success. And yeah, chickens I wanted are to hear some successes. Popular.
7: Yeah, there were few of them.
0: <laughs> well, you raised vegetables. Did you yeah. actually manage to succeed in living off of your farm for yes. a month, as you were assigned to do by this I, this uh, New York Magazine article?
7: I did. I, I, I um, actually survived longer um, than the, the prescribed period. But again, because mostly because I didn't, you know, I. I didn't, eat- I didn't hit the first deadline because I was, I was not done because I was still in my backyard and the outside world seemed like a terrible place to be. Uh, yeah. um, one of the great gifts with all these you know, uh, you know catastrophes going on around me was I walked past our bodega-, our bodega on Church Avenue and thought this was in the middle of the dietary moonwalk. Um, I thought, I haven't been in that bodega for two weeks and I don't think I need to go back in there for at least... Four more, and disconnecting myself from that sort of transactional relationship most all of us mm. have, well, with we take food, for granted completely, um, and um, was was deeply rewarding, um, and it's it's why we we still keep chickens. Um, and with that, I'll segue immediately to how they arrived. <laughs> <laughs> yes, twenty five meat birds. Farm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in a panic after the rabbits didn't do what the rabbits um, are fabled to do, I uh, pushed them back in the garage, the whole hutch. Threw some food at them, some water at them. and um,
0: Just let them eat each other?
7: Yeah. Nope. I, <laughs> they were separated, otherwise they might. The, um, And got in the, uh, I have this uh, late model land cruiser. And by then I had had a, uh, a, a farmhand, a, a great guy yes, Caleb. named Caleb Townsend, who was between his high school and his freshman year in college and just wanted a job that would get him to his Columbia University bartending school, you know on time, every time he needed to be there and that he didn't have to be outside. I basically made his lunch for him and that was it. And uh, he had lots of really terrible jobs on the farm. Um, Cleaning out the rabbit hutch. Especially after I'd uh, mutilated myself. But, um, so I let him drive and you know, lots of enthusiasm, no technical knowledge is the reason why most of these, ki- these kids die on the road uh, with their learner's permit. But I didn't care because I wanted to read the newspaper. And, you know, I thought if you really wanted to drive, so we let him drive out to English Town, New Jersey, to the Agway, where we found uh, 25 meat birds, four ducks. And we were given a stray, basically looked like, you know, crack whore of a chicken. <laughs> Very like little contiguous plumage and um, <laughs> Oh, that is these frightening. great trunk like scaly fat elephantiasis legs and Wow. Yeah, and, what uh, we, breed was you know, that? Uh, you, know, uh, you know, I think it was Crackhoe you know, breed. Yeah, Crackhoe chicken. That's a special yeah, heritage that breed. We didn't that uh, yeah, that's, that's a heritage breed. It might enthusiastic? Yeah. So <laughs> a <right>. Manhattan breed. <laughs> <laughs> my enthusiasm i probably would have paid something for her, but uh, you know she was offered free because the uh sales clerk said that he, uh, the bird had been delivered to their front door a few days before in a, in a cat carrier um oh so my we took
0: God. <laughs> <An> abandoned chicken <laughs> <laughs> Benny, that and, is too funny and,
7: and a lot of fly uh, industrial fly um traps because we were overrun at that point just with the rabbits and then the chickens to come made it even worse. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, so I showed up with 25 day old chickens and the kids went cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs um, loving the little you know, tweet, tweet, tweet thing and chasing them around and then Lisa came home and that was really the... That was, Lisa apparently quickly drank half a bottle of wine trying to hold back her tears and went upstairs and packed her bag to go uh, move into the Ritz. She decided that she's tired of this and she was gonna blow, you know, our the rest sa- of your life savings. savings. On yeah. The, yeah, living wow. uh, living in a style that she should be, you know. Um, that she deserved. Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, she didn't actually do much more than pack the bag, thank God. Although she probably would have left if I had figured out what she was doing and tried to talk her out of it. Um,
0: <laughs> but fortunately you were too preoccupied chasing your little fluff balls around.
7: Right. So the next thing to do, of course, because I never did anything I never collected any animals on the farm without first um, not constructing a place for them to live, so yeah. we had to um, stick them in cardboard boxes until they were re- until we had subdivided what became known as the FEMA trailer <laughs> the further team. yeah we had you know um it was basically a chicken wire pen in the back porch, which used to be where we ate dinner um in the summer and uh um, became a stinky um livestock
2: cesspool of Man,
1: it
7: was yeah pretty grim sure.
1: Um, and were you going to kill these chickens eventually? These were all meat birds. So you were going to kill them right there on yeah. the farm.
7: I had completely forgotten that chickens laid eggs. Uh, like I, <laughs> I, I mean, it took, it took until the stray, the crack hoe, yeah. laid an egg. <laughs> she did? Yeah, and then ate it. Oh, She brother. ate her own egg? Yep. No
0: kid.
5: Well, Boy, she, you had a real the, problem with that. She laid like the that. first egg.
7: And, and I got it. We got it, right? <laughs> no more crack for you know, her. I'm the pimp. You know? Yeah. <laughs> 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 away
4: give me your that. egg. You know? You can't. You know, Hand I get, it over, I bitch. get the money, <laughs> I'll give you back. Uh, <laughs> um, if they get away with it once. Yeah, no, got to be hard, you know?
7: <laughs> Cruel to be kind. That's always been my pimp motto, my chicken pimp motto. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> um, but she, um, yeah, she. Um, She beat me like uh, five to three um, egg. Manny, I have
0: never heard of a chicken eating their own. I mean, I grew up in a rural area. We had friends who had chickens. We never saw a chicken, and they were in a terrible, I mean, you know, no no disrespect intended, but I mean, they were in a really disgusting little coop with a revolting roosting box. I mean, it was gross in there. They never ate their own eggs.
7: Yeah, well, I I thought it was pretty spectacular too. And then I, the the blogosphere um, after the publication of the uh, initial story came out, informed me over and over and over again that she was simply suffering from a calcium deficiency. And if I had done anything to address this oh, dietary because of problem, you know, you devil incarnate you know, that you, you are, you. you know, haters love failure. And so I was, um, I was. Uh, well hated. No, you put yourself <laughs> and, out there and, and for treat, sure. And
0: treat, it to, uh, yeah, and treat it to everybody's. It's sort of like being a pregnant woman, which of course you guys would not know this, but I can promise you that uh, you cannot walk around without somebody either touching your stomach or after you have the baby, if it's a newborn, telling you what you're doing wrong about taking care of it, whether it's having the baby, baby turned out or <laughs> not having on a hat or I, you know, whatever it is, you're doing it wrong. Yeah, No question.
7: Well, I did the same thing you did. I poke them in the eye. It's yeah. Really <laughs>
1: <it>. <laughs> so uh, tell us, what are some success stories? I mean, there must have been some little pleasant moments, some little epiphanies, uh, be they gastronomic or something growing that you didn't right. expect it to.
7: Um, the, um, the, really the the was really was one of the great. Um, pleasures of the garden what's that it's a it's a a caribbean varietal spinach it's even more tender and delicate than oh i thought it was a um, squash shame on me no it's a it's a um, it almost looked like a nettle actually Um, but it's it's a really it's tasty and very fragile i don't know how i managed you know to keep it alive Hmm. um, because i couldn't do anything with cabbage and you'd think
0: yeah, of all cabbage. I mean, A lot that of grows they, in, grow. they
7: grow in Russia. In
0: yeah, because they grow in the Eastern Bloc yeah. <laughs> when the temperature is never over forty.
7: <laughs> Again, arrogance, not information, was really what propelled me for the first. You know.
0: Well, I loved. I mean, in the book anyway. I don't know if this is really true, but in the book, you sort of attack this job with doing no, apparently no preparation whatsoever in terms of. Understanding what the needs were going to be. Although I did think that measuring out, you know, gritting out your backyard and figuring out where the sun hit was pretty cool.
7: And then discovering that it hit nowhere.
0: Yeah, that it didn't, yeah, <laughs> there wasn't any, you know. And I was glad you didn't cut down all the trees surrounding it. I kept looking at
5: seed
7: packets trying to figure out if partial sun...
0: <laughs>
7: Equaled no sun?
0: <laughs> <laughs> in the special Manny Howard math you were using? Exactly.
7: <laughs> Although when the tornado knocked down the neighbor's oh, hemlock yeah. tree, um, I got a lot more sun. But yeah, yeah. So we also so got, that was a
0: little gift from God.
7: Yeah. On August eighth, the first tornado to hit Brooklyn in 108 years yeah. <laughs> C- came from New Jersey, through Richmond, Staten Island, across the Narrows, up the glacial moraine known as Sunset Park, took a left on Caton Avenue, <laughs> bang, directly to yeah. the Manny Howard <laughs> I think, farm. I think, in fairness, it probably like it, you know it hit you know i got a glancing blow um because and did that uproot everything even glancing um, the the neighbor's hemlock um came down on top of the chicken coop oh. and crushed it and so you know you think gathering chickens off the yard floor is hard getting them out of the hemlock which is 12 feet up in the air is a real oh challenge God. um and then a, a tertiary walnut uh limb came down right in what was called the back 40 which is the only actual probably full sun 40 by 40 I mean 20 by 20 mm-hmm. um uh, spot on the in, the in the backyard and that crushed all the collards so when it came time to eat i was mostly eating canned and <laughs> frozen collard collards instead of the fresh ones that i had imagined eating right. yeah um and uh but the the chicken coop with the the laying hens was um, a, a great success mm-hmm. and And at the end of the day, you know, just disconnecting myself from the from that transactive, transactive, transactional, transactional. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Relationship we all have with food (laughs) was uh, was 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 a big deal, and also realizing after having sat down for a very long time, much longer than it took to write the magazine story, and sort of six weeks into the book, that uh, uh, that I'd done something. Sort of real, which was to take what was essentially a gully, mm-hmm. you know, a completely barren piece of earth, and give it back. That was pretty great.
1: Now, were there certain? I want to take this to kind of go to a bigger picture with it. I mean, but before I do that, I wanted to ask: like, did you have to give up certain diet things? Like, were there? I mean, could you eat the way you normally ate, or like, if you had been better at it, could you have, or would you give up something when you cut yourself off from the system?
7: Um, well, I did think a lot about what pioneers must have done when they decided this is the place they were going to live in and they you know stopped living out of the wagon and built the cabin and realized, well, whatever's here is what we're eating for until... You know, for at least a year. Yeah, at least a year. Um, so there was that moment um, because what I basically ate every day during the moonwalk was one or two eggs and a tomato for breakfast. And then my main meal was either one chicken or half a chicken, depending on how... Uh, hungry I was and collard greens and eggplant or squash and you know I had enough herbs and all that stuff to flavor it up and some onion, some green onions but that meal was that was I repeated that 60 times <laughs> um uh-huh. and uh so yeah I mean I had enough food to eat I didn't have any variety and after I would boiled my second eggplant I uh begged for uh on the hoof dispensation for a little bit of olive oil <laughs> because you can't eat a boiled eggplant. Why it's, would
0: you boil an eggplant?
7: Well, I couldn't fry it in anything. I didn't have any frying oil because ah. I'd gotten ducks so that I would have frying oil, and I had some. I had much more fat than I thought because the chickens all had much more schmaltz than I'd yeah anticipated. Uh-huh. Um, but that ran out, um, and and I didn't get the duck fat because my daughter Heath had negotiated for there. Freedom. They to were our, spare their lives. Yeah, they, you uh-huh. know, blue whales and giant pandas are charismatic <laughs> ma- megafauna. Uh, most of the world. Our ducks were the charismatic megafauna in the backyard. So, um, she said one day, Daddy, you can't eat the ducks. We like Jakey and I play with the ducks. <laughs> We've named the ducks. Yeah, you can eat as many chickens as you want. She said as he thumbed the madhouse that was the chicken Well,
0: chickens have nowhere near the charm or personality of ducks. There's no question. I gotta say,
7: I was just on the radio in Washington D.C. with some chicken fanciers. Yeah, talking about pets. What great pets chicken make? Chickens make. I have never seen an affectionate gesture from a chicken. Yeah, they'd
1: poke your eye out if they
7: could. No, I mean they're docile enough, but if it looked like tic tac toe. Yeah, right, with a little electricity. <laughs> <laughs> or dancing. That's right.
1: <laughs> chickens are, I mean, turkeys don't, poultry basically don't care that Waterfowl care. I mean, ducks and geese, they live to be older. Yeah, chickens don't seem to have that much of a rapport with the farms that no. raise them. I mean, they know how to follow you and whatnot, but, I mean, they're not, uh, you know, the celebrities of the farm world, for sure. They're more like... Uh, anyone can eat them because they can grow like you say in a closet or something like that so yeah. um, and I always fascinated about the chicken they are completely local to this little forest in Indonesia mm-hmm. it's the only place that they ever existed Gallus Gallus yeah. Gallus Gallus exactly well um, let's take a step back to this local movement and I'd also ask you Ron I mean does it make sense? Like how important is mileage to you and what conclusions have you made about the bigger locavore movement? You know, I pose that question to both of you because it's being dropped all the time as a term.
4: For me, it's not that important. I, I'm I'm much more interested in uh, the quality of the farm itself. Uh, although with that in mind, I always try to get as close as possible. Um, but... I'm sure somebody's going to yell at me for this. If no, nobody's uh, going to yell at you. you know, I, tasted, I, I I I buy sea salt from this this guy this little place in Portugal, uh, and I tasted some sea salt the other day from Maine, and there really was no comparison. I, I and I'm not going with the Maine guy. I don't really care about that, even though, you know, Portugal Portugal is far away. Um, and so you know, you're
1: looking for quality. So I
4: have to have quality, um,
1: or your customers won't come back.
4: Yeah, or you know, if I mean, I, I won't eat it my, <laughs> myself. I'm very <laughs> snotty about it. So,
1: and how about you? I mean, everyone talks about oh, I want to be a locavore, but then you're someone who did it. So, do you have any conclusions or observations you made that informs the locavore movement?
7: Well, with the caveat that I probably did it. Um, the worst way possible right? the hardest, the hardest, way, hardest possible. way possible yeah and and initially i thought what i was going to do was figure out what i could do well and then um like if, if it was eggs or meat birds or cattle or, or actually probably more likely collard greens i would find a network and i would plug into that network and we would do the barter thing and mm-hmm. you know sort of neo-tribalist <laughs> happiness um but i quickly decided that nobody could do anything as well or at least as hysterically as I could and uh, I was going <laughs> to do it all myself um, so I left the rest of the world including you know happy barterers everywhere um, behind um, you know I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy I you know the, especially I mean you know, I've, in, you know in fairness if you have a farm 50 miles from New York and you want to sell your produce you know in New York for the price that it actually is Costs to grow it, which is, you know, one of the central points of all yeah, this. Yeah, we which talk about that, that a lot here. You yeah. know, um, and and that was never more you know clear. Never mind you know treasure, you know lives and treasure <laughs> that must go into growing you know pretty um, kale that looks like a flower, you know, bouquet of flowers at the at the at the farmers market. Because the truth is, nobody's going to the farmers market to buy worm-eaten kale. They want it to look better. Absolutely. You, you know, if not as good or, or if, if not better than the stuff they buy uh-huh. at grocery stores that will remain, you know, nameless. Um, that's, that's the sort of lie to the whole thing, which is that, you know, I ate a lot of really good tasting um, vegetables that the worms got first. And mm-hmm. it doesn't have to look pretty to taste good. And, yeah. you know, and part of this local thing is it's a, you know, it's a very um, well thought out consumer strategy. It's not politics, I don't think. Mm -hmm. Um, Because nobody's clear on whether or not it takes less, the carbon footprint to get apples from Mm -hmm. South America on a boat to here uh, is, is less than loading up, you know, Two bushels of apples in a Subaru and driving it from right, you know, Hudson County. Uh, but I,
4: on the other hand, I mean, the New York State apples are great, and I think that's a great example because why, why, why send out ninety percent of the apples from New York State and then bring ninety percent in from Washington where they've got to travel all that distance and they taste sure. I mean, the apples in New York, even are, if so they apples taste were bad, as good. A, b- apples but were a bad example. I think but, it's a good you know, example because
7: yeah. that's you know, right. Uh, this is the this is the main right the rational of stream of, rationalize the system right. If we've got good apples here.
0: Yeah, if you have good apples, good dairy, then keep it where it belongs. Yeah, you know, use and also it it's here. just
7: good to have. Yeah,
4: exactly. Upstate used to be a big dairy region, and now yeah. it's all concentrated and you know unnecessarily because of a lot of subsidies. That seems silly,
1: right? And plus, the number of uh, the total output of the local farms would still be a blip off what the city needs anyway. So it seems about maxing out the local, which takes very little. I mean, like we say with the Sullivan County cheese, I mean, all the dairy of Sullivan County combined would make 7,000 pounds of cheese a week. Right. That's nothing. That's what I eat. <laughs>
4: <laughs> you know, I, I, was at a, I was at a meeting a couple weeks ago with the superintendent of school lunch.
0: Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And with
4: some very upset sixth grade girls at this, you know, who had taken pictures and started a blog of the... Can you swear on this radio show? Yes. Yes. The shit that they feed these kids at school lunch. And, you know, I mean, these kids were smart, articulate, and really had their arguments together. They were great. And this guy, who... I'm on the show. We <laughs> actually show. had a lot
0: of people on the show about <laughs> well, school lunch. So you know, so, he yeah. was he was basically. I, w- I was just thinking, I want them
4: reading <laughs> off of his you know cue cards of like, we really want to take this thing local, organic. I'm like, you've got eight hundred thousand lunches to do a day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's not enough produce that, in the in the right. twenty state area to do that. You have to go with this other stream. Yeah. But you know why not do it well? You don't have to go with manufactured food. You can go with you know commercial farms and, and make fresh it food. fresh and better
1: And uh, also I, mean, I don't think the sustainable movement's job is to feed the public school system. I agree. There's a lot of corporate cafeterias with a lot more money, you know, I don't know. Well, and it's also like newspapers, were- magazines, those corporate cafeteria universities before we get to the poorest budget you know, first, that needs to be top-down, I think. We should have uh, NYU commit X amount to that cheese before we expect PS-191 in the Bronx. I mean, that's uh, too low a budget. But as, the
4: easiest thing uh, is if, like you were saying about in Japan, you know, these the families cook their food and they go to school with that. Yeah, but <clears> throat> throat> yeah. that's,
0: unfortunately, I that, that I don't see as a solution. I mean, school lunch is something that <clears throat> what, no, cooking? occupies multiple... Yeah. Oh, right. making well, an argument a, <coughs> against cooking. No, wow. but I mean, I just know that kids.
7: And people fought hard for school lunch. There for are a plenty. Long time, yeah, and, yeah, exactly. And probably, school
0: lunch I mean, provides, uh, you know, a nutritional punch. Poss- you know, pathetic as it is. To kids who might otherwise not get that meal, so
4: I just don't think it's that nutritious. I, I it's I, not,
0: but it it can be. And there, I mean, we've had a lot of people come on the show to talk about how to improve it. And you know, part of it is the procurement contracts have to be changed. Uh, you have staff that has absolutely no clue. They are the lowest. You know, they're paid a, a minimum wage. All they know how to do is open a bag, put the stuff on a sheet pan, and throw it in the oven. And that's the equipment that they have. They don't right. even have Reagan a lot of them. Don't the even have a, a stovetop. Yeah. They don't even don't have burners. Um, they have a bunch of deck ovens, and that's it. So. Right you know you have to start with the infrastructure where you know the school lunch lady that Patrick grew up with here in New York City doesn't really exist anymore and you know there's people there are organizations that are working to try to bring that skill level back as well as bring the infrastructure back into the school system and then you can start talking about not using you know extruded processed chicken meat with water and blah 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 you're you're actually buying a chicken breast and turning that into a burrito or you're buying and beans and turning them into you know beans and rice.
1: Well, I met with uh, Sam Cass, you know, who cooks with uh, for the Obamas yeah. each and every day. And um, I was in D.C. with Anne. Ann came with me, and they had a great idea, which was to partner every public school in the nation with the chef or a restaurant, I should say. So, for instance, Babo would be responsible for one school, and that whole out- operation, as- of Babo would have yeah, to. Yeah, but what if your restaurant was sure- Denny's? <laughs>
6: well no I mean it would have to
1: be a good restaurant but I mean the thing is I think that's a good idea I don't know why that doesn't happen you know, I don't know why now there haven't been more emails or I haven't been hearing about this because well, it's a great thing. And I always think the difference that there's a divide between action and the idea. Yes. You know, because if you put a, a, a smart, ambitious college student on that job, there's no reason why they wouldn't have a thousand Manhattan restaurants already signed up and just being like, "What school do we go?" Or in, how about when?
0: you take a you take a year out of culinary school? You get a kid who's in culinary school who's just out of culinary school and throw him into a kitchen
1: with the lunch lady. With you know, the there's, lunch there's lunch a lot lady. of regular. And the the other and, uh, thing
4: is their unions and these guys there's a budget of two dollars yes. and sixty cents for lunch. A dollar sixty of that goes to benefits, wages.
0: Children wind up with ninety one cents right. per meal. It's a two dollar and ninety seven cent budget. They got a six cent increase in the Childhood Nutrition Reauthorization Act in March. So as opposed to the seventy five to one hundred cent increase that they had sought. So six cents. I mean What are you supposed to do with that, dude?
1: That's why. That's a tough thing. The public school, I mean, I'm more like, (coughs) um, you know, the ESPN zone. Uh, They have a place, a facility in Connecticut. What are they serving? You know the New York Times building, the Condé Nast building, the Hurt, and I know many of them are doing good things. But those that would cover all the small farms in the state, right there, just NYU and Columbia University alone. Like, yeah. are they truly allowing that food? And like I said, I just got back from James Madison University, um, Radford, and Virginia Tech, and they're like, if you can complete this booklet of stuff, the 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 thing is open. But I think that there's a dearth, a lack of uh, marketers and. Distributors, You know, those people forcing that connection through because it's really not brain surgery to, to bring a truckload of cheese or something like that from upstate New York to the back of uh, Columbia University or something. Well,
0: the question is, is what what will they do with it afterwards? And that kind of leads into the whole idea of whether or not somebody who is staffing a cafeteria or an institutional kitchen can actually cook. And it uh, kind of brings me back to you, Manny, because your experiment – Assumed that you would know what to do with those products once you had grown them, and I think I, Patrick and I argue about this oh, all the, cooking the time. End, the cooking element—it's right. well, like you know—you can you can have all you can go to the farmer's market or you can grow all the vegetables you want, but if you don't know what to do with them,
1: well, it's irrelevant. Just to defend my thing, my uh, my point is that you know uh, the obesity epidemic. I don't. I. Bringing a farmer's market there and expecting these people who have all these economic hardship and responsibility to cook, I just think I would rather, I think it's more easy to start a fast food franchise that serves a competitively priced meal. That's fully well rounded. That for you. and th- that's what people go. I like eating out most of the time. So why would I expect someone who has even less free time than me, if they're working two three jobs, to all of a sudden read uh, Julia children. Child recipe on kale production? Like that seems like, <laughs> it, you know, it's like saying Brazil Brazil should get Julia educated Child. or something. It's a hard tall order, you know. It is. Well, you don't have to be Julia Child. So anyway, to answer Kate's question... uh, um, Yeah,
0: so you already knew how to cook, obviously, pretty well.
7: Yeah, I mean, I think the reason... Because
0: if you didn't know what to do with kalaloo or how to cook a chicken...
7: Yeah. Or... What would you have done? I had an inkling that I would kill it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I also knew construction because it's the family business, so I knew, you know, I had some sense of... You know, Constructing I, a plate, except for the old finger, of course. But no, of, no, uh, the, I was building the building the, far, you know, the substrate the that was, you know, building that I built the, you know, the chicken coop. I did all this, mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, the assumption was that I would be able to, you know, I would know one end of a chicken from another when it came time. Um, um, so, you know,
0: but you did because you did it.
1: And what's still active now, or when did that happen? And what part of the farm is still totally in production?
7: Two thousand seven. Um, and sometime in uh, was when it was at its peak. And then sometime in, uh, I think, January 2008, the dumpster showed up and the rabbit hutch, which was now empty, sadly, and I'll, if you buy the book, you'll know why, um, uh, was wheeled into the dumpster along with most of the filth, and the, r- the rusted out fridge. Um, and Everybody but should have a rusted out fridge on their property, don't you think? Well, if you're a farmer. No farm is complete yeah. without that. Um, and a weirdly sad tri- rusty tricycle too. Um, <laughs> 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 oh my god!
0: <laughs>
7: With one pedal. Um, uh, but we've we've oh, we've had chickens uh, ever since, uh-huh. and so we, we haven't bought eggs since 2007. Uh, nice. Uh, and you know, my boy Jake's uh, job in the morning is he's six now um, is to go out and get the eggs. It's awesome. February came in. He said, Daddy, Daddy, one of the chickens is frozen to the floor. Um, which happens, you know. Just the crack coat is the still there. Yeah, I was going to ask. She lasted a long time, but she actually got uh, raccooned. Uh, oh. We have a raccoon colony It lives in a dumpster out behind the Kentucky Fried Chicken on Coney Island Avenue. And when the chicken starts to freeze in the dumpster, uh, the raccoons come looking for the warm chicken, and they know where it is at. It's like a warm, and they can get through.
1: That's
7: right. <laughs> <laughs> and we, have, sorry, they can get through the now, raccoons. Well, it took me a while to figure out how to armor it correctly, but it's raccoons uh, are, are really smart. Yeah, yeah. I, I, what I did was I, I, uh, I put the wire at the and bottom. They have opposable thumbs. Yeah.
1: I always wanted to know: Would a Weston Red Scottish Terrier versus a raccoon?
0: It would, where be on ugly the dog, yeah, it would
1: be very ugly, but where on the line does, I mean, what type of protection, livestock protection, do you need to deal with raccoons? I mean, they're those great Pyrenees dogs. I'm a big fan of livestock protecting dogs. Yeah. And for the urban person, I'm wondering, like, what's the smallest size
7: dog? Like, could beagles Well, kill Manny, em? you have a could, dog. Yeah. Or you had a well, dog. No, pointer lab Fergus. Pointer Lab, you just had the dog just needs to go out in the backyard and the raccoon is pretty much yeah. gone. But they don't have any natural predators except for me and Fergus. And uh, I ma- <laughs> <I> ma- <laughs> I've managed to dispatch a couple of them with using a garden hoe. Um, which is Oh, you killed or, it? Well, it turned around and looked at me after I chased it to the top of the fence and it just went like this. Confronting. You know, it was like eyeballing me. I didn't know what it was doing. And I was holding the hoe and I thought, Well, okay, I'll just I'll Cut give it in it a half. Whack. Oh, god Why <laughs> <laughs> you
0: need to talk to my brother? We call him Doctor Mengele <laughs> He loves to kill raccoons. <laughs> oh man! Yeah,
7: um, but we had a Red Hawk that lives in Prospect Park. That was uh, that got one of the birds last spring. Oh, yeah. Was, um, so it, you know. To, to so there are natural oh, predators, there in
1: New York. Coyotes
7: City? and wolves at all? I mean, I know they
1: can survive. Or foxes can survive in urban environments?
7: We, uh, the only other thing I've seen is possum, but I haven't seen any foxes. I mean, there, well, there was a fox, right? They took like you know 500 man hours, uh, NYPD man coyote. hours. No, it, it was coyote. Held, oh, was it, oh was it right? Okay, yeah. yeah.
1: I was in Tribeca. Uh, yeah.
7: I was and they ran it to ground the in Central uh, Park. You need a helicopter?
0: <laughs> Wasn't
4: there another <laughs> Central Oh, I guess
1: yeah, there was.
0: Yeah. I've seen quite a few raccoons in Riverside Park myself. So yeah, there's plenty of them. They're everywhere. I mean, that's yeah. yeah. Well, this is a perfect
7: environment for raccoons. Let's face it. You never hear Bloomberg talk about the raccoon problem. Yeah, (laughs) no, you (laughs) know that's 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 a problem without solution.
1: Well, we should take a, 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 no, a break. No, we have to
0: wrap it up, actually. The, so let's Oh, is, let's, this, is the show done? Yeah, it's almost. Okay. Jack is. Uh, no, not quite.
1: Well, we're going to come back minute. for closing comments, I thought. Okay, or no, well, let's I don't know. just, I'm just repeat, reading the schedule. Uh, you know,
0: this is uh, our guest today have been Ron Silver from uh, Bubbies in uh, Tribeca, Brooklyn, and Japan. And uh, Angela Miller, who was on earlier in the program. Uh, Hay Fever. With Hay Fever. And um, and do look for her cheeses, the Consider Bardwell brand. Absolutely fabulous, as Jack and I discovered earlier this week. And our guest uh, for this last hour, Manny Howard, My Empire of Dirt. Uh, which just came out It's published by Scribners And it is Falling down funny um, Definitely uh, Tune into Both of those books They were both great Next so week
1: is a, Is a repeat And then Because yeah, uh, I'm
0: opening up The house for you guys um, we're,
1: all, and then we're going
0: on A road trip
1: We're going uh, to Rhode we're Island We're to do A Rhode Island we're Agricultural tour Combine Cutting the Curd And show With yeah. uh, the main course And we're going to Interview I guess Ten people Or a bunch of people From Rhode Island Yeah
0: yeah, something and like that.
1: Then when we get back, we have Marion Nessel, Joe up Amanda Hesser, Steve, Steve Jenkins. Jenkins. Um, oh, I think we have uh, my buddy from the French Culinary Institute, Dave Arnold, going to oh, come yeah, to talk right. about. It's and not molecular. And should get Nils
0: Noren to come in as yeah, well. Yeah, he
1: might with come them, with yeah. him. So yeah, we have a uh, real stars. We have some
0: great shows coming up.
1: Yeah, it's awesome.
0: So stay tuned. This has been the main course.
1: You can read the tags on heritageradionetwork.com
0: thank you to our producer, Jack Inslee, who did an awesome job with producing a uh, little Pracy of the show earlier, and to Nat Wiener, our excellent engineer. And um, I guess we'll see you next week. Thanks a lot, folks. And thank you to Fairway, our sponsor for today's show.
7: you've been hearing today and the main course is from bluegrass band cherry holmes the first song you heard was i can only love you so much the second break was don't believe third was goodbye fourth song was this is my son and right now you are listening to broken again that's cherry holmes from the album cherry holmes three don't believe thanks for listening